Welcome to Rethinking Wellness, a podcast that offers critical thinking and compassionate skepticism about wellness and diet culture and reflections on how to find true well-being. I'm your host, Christy Harrison, and I'm a registered dietitian, certified intuitive eating counselor, journalist, and author of three books, including Anti-Diet, which was published in 2019, The Emotional Eating, Chronic Dieting, Binge Eating, and Body Image Workbook, which will be out on February 20th, and The Wellness Trap, which came out in 2023 and is the inspiration for this podcast. You can learn more and order it now at christyharrison.com slash thewellnesstrap or find it wherever books are sold. Hey there, and welcome back to Rethinking Wellness. I'm Christy, and my guest today is author and science communicator Timothy Caulfield, who I'm really excited to talk with because he's someone who is a noted skeptic of all things wellness culture, and he has an interest in something that is a huge interest of mine these days, too, which is gut hype. So we're going to talk about it in this episode. We're going to talk about why gut hype has become so widespread, the gulf between the claims about gut health and the actual science how mainstream media reporting and social media have helped stoke the hype machine, and the role of scientist influencers and university press releases in creating gut hype. We'll also talk about how to tell if you're in the presence of gut hype versus more accurate reporting about the gut microbiome and more. This is a great conversation, and I can't wait to share it with you shortly. Before I do, a few quick announcements. This podcast is brought to you by my second book, The Wellness Trap, Break Free from Diet Culture, Disinformation, and Dubious Diagnoses, and Find Your True Well-Being, which is available wherever books are sold. The book explores the connections between diet culture and wellness culture, how the wellness space became overrun with scams, misinformation, and conspiracy theories, why many popular alternative medicine diagnoses are misleading and harmful, and what we can do instead to create a society that promotes true well-being. Just go to christyharrison.com slash thewellnesstrap to learn more and order the book. That's christyharrison.com slash thewellnesstrap, or just pop into your favorite local bookstore and ask for it there. This podcast is also made possible by my paid subscribers on Substack. Not only do paid subscriptions help support the show and keep me able to do this content for free, but they also get you great perks like bonus episodes, including one I did with this week's guest, Tim Caulfield, bi-weekly bonus Q&As, and other bonus essays and episodes subscriber-only comment threads where you can connect with other listeners, and lots more. Just go to rethinkingwellness.substack.com to learn more and sign up. That's rethinkingwellness.substack.com. And thanks so much to everyone who's already become a paid subscriber. It really means the world to me that you support this work and help me keep doing what I'm doing. Now, without any further ado, here's my conversation with Timothy Caulfield. So Tim, welcome to the show. I'm so excited to talk with you today. Oh, I'm thrilled to be here. Yeah, so I'm a huge fan of your work. I'm sure many of my listeners will be too. And there's so many things we could talk about in terms of wellness culture in general, lots of different areas we could go. But I specifically wanted to focus this episode on gut hype because it's a personal interest of mine. It's definitely of interest to many of my listeners. And you've done some great research and writing on the topic, and it seems like it's really an interest of yours as well. So I'd really love to get into all that. To start off, I'd love to hear how you define gut hype and how you got interested in the subject in the first place. Well, for, for me, gut hype really is closely tied to microbiome hype. And uh, I got interested in this because I've, 
I've long followed various science trends. But actually, my whole career kind of maps a lot of the big science movements. So you think about things like the Human Genome Project, and then we were all focused on the role of our human genome and, and genetics in, in wellness. And, and then we had the stem cell regenerative medicine trend, we, you know, and both of these, those trends continue. And we saw the wellness community really embrace that kind of language, regenerative medicine and stem cell products for anti-aging purposes, et cetera, et cetera. And then we had the precision medicine, personalized medicine movement. Again, that's still still continuing. And you saw the wellness industry also embrace that language. Then emerges the microbiome trend, right? And, and what's fascinating about all of these is it's real science. You know, it's real exciting stuff. It's big science. Lots of resources have been funneled into these areas. I've been involved with scientists and science projects in all of those areas. In fact, I have still have a genome grant now, I have a microbiome grant that I'm involved in. But what we're seeing with, across all of those domains is, is the emergence of unproven claims in the wellness space, right? And the microbiome area is, is the latest, and I think it's one of the best examples of science hype being exploited to market unproven products. So that's, that's I guess, the big picture reason why I'm, I'm interested in this. But in addition to that, I think it's just a really, really good example of, of unproven products that sort of t have taken off in a variety of ways, right? I mean, if we went out on the street and interviewed a thousand people five years ago. I wonder if you agree with me on this. We interviewed a thousand people. I bet most people wouldn't really know what microbiome is, or they have sort of a vague idea what, what the microbiome was about. Now everyone knows. And in fact, there are so many products with the word microbiome on the label, right? Mm -hmm. And it, so think of that remarkable shift that has happened in just a couple of years. It's been completely, completely normalized, this idea of having a healthy, a healthy microbiome. The other reason, I'll, I'll give you two more reasons why I'm interested in this <laughs> topic. The other reason is I, I think it's often used in a very exploitive manner. So th there's been some wellness trends that pe some people can go, oh, well, it's kind of, you know, benign, who, you know, who who really cares if people are using crystals, well, blah, blah, blah. But here, here there, th this is often being marketed to people who are, I hate to use the word desperate, because it kind of makes it sound like they're, they, they don't have agency. But they're often people who are desperate or have, have, you know, serious problems, or perhaps they're frustrated with the conventional system you know, area, or, or, or there are people, you know, looking for answers, like parents with children who have autism, right? So I, I, I'm frustrated that it's also used in those kinds of domains, domains, you know, the you know, issue of gut health and, and, and the microbiome. And the last one, last one, and there's many I could go on with, <laughs> last one I'll raise right now is personal interest. You know, this is a, an issue that is relevant to my personal life to my family. I don't, I've asked permission, my, you know, my family to mention that, you know, they have gut issues. And, and so I, it's relevant to my, my personal life. Yeah, that resonates for me too. I, I personally struggle with IBS and a bunch of other gut issues. And it's something that, you know, I feel like I'm the target market in many ways, and yet also very much not because I'm so skeptical of it. But, you know, I find that kind of marketing so insidious and so harmful because, you know, in my most 
desperate moments, I too still am like, I wonder if there's anything to this, you know? And I think it just really is seductive. I'm curious why you think that this kind of marketing has emerged so, because I, I agree, I think within the last five years, it's just exploded. And I've done a little research on it for some pieces I've written, and I'm doing kind of an ongoing series about gut health and, you know, have seen the Google Trends data that like in the last 10 years or so, it's really had a steady upward climb. But I think really in the last five years, it's like exploded. And just curious why you think that is like what what has happened in the last five years or so that's, you know, caused this big explosion in interest in gut health and the microbiome? Well, I, I think a couple of things, and I, you know, touched on on some of them already. But I think it's the real research that's going on that kind of ignited it, right? And, and as I said, we saw that with with genomics, we saw that with stem cell research, and now we're seeing it with the microbiome. And this is real exciting research. It seems very likely that the microbiome is connected to a variety of of illnesses, and and there's great potential to both understand diseases and you know what causes ailments, and, and perhaps create microbiome-related therapies. And so that has gotten a lot of attention in the popular press. And it also, I think, is intuitively appealing, right? It, it, it seems like it's something that people can understand. We have these organisms in us, and if we learn how to impact them, it's going to have beneficial outcome to our, our, our health. Mm-hmm. So there's that, you know, I call it science exploitation, right? You take real science and you spin it to sell products. And we know research tells us that this strategy works, this science exploitation strategy. It gives credibility to the claims. It makes it seem more legitimate. Even if you don't really know what the science is about, research tells us this science exploitation strategy can work. It just gives, as I said, this, this blanket of legitimacy to whatever claim you're making. The other thing that's happening here, which is a little bit paradoxical, is fixing your microbiome kind of feels like it's a natural cure, right? I'm putting natural in quotes, by the way. So it it plays on that allure that if something is natural, it's better for you. It's not a chemical. It's not, you know, made by some evil industry. It is a natural approach to your health, even though the strategies that people use to alter their microbiome, supplements and colon cleanses and, you know, et cetera, are hardly natural, right? <laughs> but it has that appeal to nature fallacy is is powerful in this area. And the other reason I, I think it's taken off is because a lot of the therapies that are being marketed are for ailments that have been around for a while and, and people are desperate, right? You know, we don't have simple solutions for them. And so people are looking for anything that's going to help them. And when you have a product like this that, again, has that intuitive science appeal, I think it's going to take off. And, and of course, the other thing is, hey, straight up marketing. You know, For example, I think alternative medicine practitioners, and this is an area where we've done a lot of research, they're always looking for new ways to, to spin their, their products, to you know, have new products that they can sell. And, 
And so they're exploiting the rise of the microbiome research to sell to sell products. So I think that that's enough. You know, those are four reasons I think that that we're seeing this. You know, this explosion over the past couple of years. Yeah, that's so interesting. One thing I was struck by too in your research is the role of media and mainstream journalists in this process, right? You found in a recent study that, you know, a huge number of media reports are published about the microbiome every year and that very few of them have any sort of caveats about how early stage this research is and all of that. Could you talk a little bit about that research, what you found in in sort of looking at the media on this? Yeah, and and we're continuing to do research on this, by the way. We have a study now looking at gut health on TikTok. In fact, hopefully it's going to get submitted maybe today. (laughs) Oh, it's exciting. (laughs) But we are looking at, as you point out, how how the popular press represents this. And this, you know, is part of that kind of hype pipeline, right? Mm-hmm. So you have the p- popular press side of the equation. And, you know, people like stories on health issues, and they like those stories to be to be positive. And uh, we found, we looked at over 800 articles in the popular press. And I think around 95%, 94, 95% of them made claims about the microbiome and, and in relation to health. And Almost without exception, they were positive, but often did not talk about what the science was actually saying, you know, how uncertain the science was, how this was still very, you know, early days. And so it just helps to create this this atmosphere of hype that can be exploited by those selling products. Add to that what's happening on social media, on Instagram, on TikTok, on Facebook, and you get an environment where it seems like there's just upside to the microbiome and, you know, probiotics and other kind of products and, and no downside. And and the science, you know, the complexity of the science is very much underrepresented. Yeah, completely. I'm so curious if you can share anything, you know, any of your findings about gut health on TikTok or sort of early impressions anyway, before the research is published. Yeah, so this is, you know, my impressions looking at at this stuff. You know, you know it's funny cuz I have this, this wonderful research team and and then I they send me these videos to watch to to you know to help the intercoder reliability and it's amazing how much is out there. And you get these influencers making really strong claims about about gut health, right? And you know, you I'm sure you've seen these kinds of videos. They, you know, they pop up on Instagram, very very much on TikTok. And and by the way, we know that TikTok is becoming a very influential source of health misinformation and yeah, a lot of it is is misinformation. So, you get these influencers, you know, talking about about supplements, talking about uh, special diets that that they'll they'll use talk about you know things like colon cleanses a colleague of mine just posted a a video you know mocking the video not supporting it of <laughs> you know a coffee enema and mm. the person actually you know videoed themselves <laughs> getting the coffee enema oh my God. You know, don't do this by the way no. <laughs> that's the headline so you definitely get this very positive very positive vibe about gut health and, and the microbiome and these unproven interventions on on TikTok. And we know, we know that this can have an imp- impact on on health behaviors and and beliefs. 
Yeah. I mean, my background is I'm a dietitian specializing in disordered eating and have my own history of an eating disorder myself. And so like got interested in this area and, and sort of in, you know, skeptical takes on nutrition research in general because of this background, because of seeing so many of my clients and myself in the past just falling down these rabbit holes of misinformation and getting so obsessive about food and, you know, so, so kind of linking this idea of like eating perfectly to thinness, to longevity, to, you know, all of these things. And I see so much of that on the TikTok, you know, in the TikTok wellness influencer space. But I think especially with when it comes to gut health, it's like you'll see these, you know, people who are quote unquote gut health coaches, <laughs> like telling people what to eat and take, you know, telling them to take out all these foods or drink bizarre things and, you know, concoctions of things and sup take supplements and stuff. And then they show themselves before and after. And it's like a bloated belly getting thinner. And the implication is like, you're going to shrink, you're going to lose weight by doing this. And I think it's it's such a recipe for disordered eating for so many people and just so unrealistic, really, in terms of what we actually know about gut health or, you know, the, the, the microbiome and, and the real evidence there. I couldn't agree more, and and I believe one of the big things we we saw is this idea about bloating and 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 weight loss, right? And it's funny, and a lot of our I shouldn't say it's funny, it's probably not surprising to you that almost all of of the representations, and I'm gonna be careful, I don't want to overemphasize this. Many of the representations suggest that one of the goals is weight loss, either explicitly or implicitly. And you know, this is a theme that we have found. I think for decades, you know, when we looked at direct-to-consumer genetic testing, which was a very similar trend, right? You know, leveraging the excitement around genetics, you have the emergence of all these direct-to-consumer genetic testing in the context of diet. And we were surprised at the degree to which weight loss was one of the main themes there. And we're seeing the exact same thing with gut health and the microbiome. So you'll the entry point will often be language about about wellness, but either implicitly or explicitly, you know, weight loss is also put as a as a benefit to it. And and the other thing I find infuriating about a lot of this messaging, and I'm curious if you agree with this, given you know your your expertise, it, it's often represented again, either explicitly or implicitly, or or sometimes it's just even the imagery that. This is a noble thing to do. This is almost your responsibility to do this. This is what people do when they take action for their own health, that they do things like this. And if you're not doing this, you're kind of doing something wrong, right? It's kind of on you. So these are the actions that you should take in order to, you know, tackle your your health and, and your general well-being. And if you're not doing this, you know, it's on you. Yeah, I very much see that, that sort of blaming the individual for their health problems. And even people who've like had their own issues with gut stuff will be like, I used to struggle with this and then I discovered this diet and now, you know, I realized that everything that I thought I just had to live with and it's like said so derisively too. It's like, oh, I thought I just had to live like this and like this was just going to be my life forever. And then I realized that I actually could have this whole new world of being symptom free or, you know, not having this bloated belly every day. All I had to do was cut out however many foods or, you know, do this special gut health protocol that you have to DM me to get or whatever. I also have noticed a lot of gut health supposed gut health coaches don't really give a lot of information away about what they actually do. It's like DM me for more information or like a link in bio or something, you know? Yes. And that, and that is another big theme that we've seen in a number of our studies is there's also often a commercial tie-in 
right? Mm-hmm. I can't remember how many of the videos are linked to a commercial product. We saw this also in the context of like immune boosting with uh, on Instagram. It, it, it on the on the surface it, it looks quite benign and and very positive, but it often links to a product, right? And this is all about you know moving product. You know, it's about sell, selling stuff. And, and the other thing that other theme I find kind of infuriating is they also exploit the frustration that patients may be having with the conventional healthcare system, right? And I I totally get that. You know, the conventional healthcare system has a lot of problems, and they often don't treat these issues in a respectful manner, right? And especially for women and, and people of color, there's a long history of of not being treated appropriately, right? And, you know, there's the famous study that tells us that, you know, after 11 seconds, healthcare providers stop listening, you know, something like that, right? And there have been other studies that have talked about that. And, and you see this language by a lot of these providers, these gut health coaches, and the, oh, the word coach is, we could have a whole conversation yeah. about that, but but they exploit the problems, the legitimate problems of the healthcare system to sell products, right? And, and yeah. th- that's really a maddening trend because it, th- in a way, it tries to make them, paint them as the heroes, right? When in, in reality, what they're doing is they're exploiting a real issue with the healthcare system to sell misinformation and unproven products. Yeah, absolutely. That's such a pet peeve of mine too, as someone who has also struggled with a conventional healthcare system and sees so many clients who've gone through the same. It's like, of course, people want answers and want relief and want something other than, you know, a five minute or 10 minute meeting where the the provider, you know, assumes they know everything they need to know about you and dismisses your concerns. I mean, I have written about this and talked about this and dealt with this for so long. And I just, just like two days ago or something as we're talking or last week, I had another one of these situations with a digestive issue I was having. And I thought, you know, for some reason, I thought I was like past having to deal with that because I had like found a decent set of providers, but I ended up seeing a different provider that day because my normal one wasn't available. And it's just like, here we are again, you know, back to square one, back to having to advocate for myself and like go through a bunch of hoops to get the, the kind of care I need. And you're a knowledgeable patient, right? You're yeah. imagine what it's like for people that you know don't have your your background, and and then when they see these individuals, these providers, these coaches who allegedly have answers, you can see why it's so seductive. Yeah, and there's so much empathy sometimes that are that is offered in those spaces that you might not get, or just time, you know, that you might not get from a conventional provider. It's so true, you know. I, I've gone to a host of alternative providers, you know, as an experiment for my own Mm -hmm. research. And I can, I mean, you name it, I've been, (laughs) I've gone to see them. And and I can say almost without exception, and there are a few exceptions, it was a positive experience. You know, they, they spend sometimes an hour with you listening to your problems and, you know, suggesting personalized solutions. And my experiences with the conventional system 
have almost uniformly been terrible. Right? Mm-hmm. You know, so <laughs> I totally get. It. And by the way, my wife is a physician. My son is a physician. My sister in law is wow. a physician. My brother in law is a physician. You know, I can go, <laughs> I can very connect and I research in this space and I collaborate with physicians. And despite all of that, it's almost always terrible. So I get it. I get the why people are attracted and, and what I get what they're selling, right? Mm-hmm. And, and the other thing they're selling is this personalization phenomenon. I'm sure, you know, the, that, that, which is another big gut health story that's really starting to take off now. You have these direct-to-consumer testing companies, you know, they test your poop. Like, maybe I won't use the name. And even though there's very little evidence to support what they're providing, that personalization, that precision approach to your, you know, to your wellness journey, again, we know that that can be very, very persuasive, very, very seductive. Even though, again, no evidence really to, to support that that at all. There was a fascinating study that that came out this year that found that just telling someone. So you have two absolutely identical protocols, right? Mm-hmm. And it's a clinical trial, and one arm of the study, it's the standard protocol. The same protocol is given to the second arm of the study, but you just tell the patients that this is personalized, right? So it's not any different. Just tell them it's personalized. They get a, a larger placebo effect, just if you believe this was tailored for you. And that's, of course, one of the things that's happening here. Yeah, that's so interesting. And one of the reasons it might seem like these quote unquote personalized gut health approaches are actually effective, even though they're not or they don't have any real good evidence behind them. That's right. And, and in fact, I think that, again, I'll ask you if you agree with this. I, I think gut health is, and maybe even the word microbiome, is emerging as as a health halo. You were, you're a dietitian, so you see how, you know, health halos, you know, are all over your world, <laughs> oh, yeah. your universe. But, you know, we've had natural, we have organic, you know, GMO free, you know, these all these health halos that have been around for a really long time and remain very, very powerful. I kind of think gut health and microbiome and personalized, these, these are new health halos. And, and what I find fascinating about health halos that, you know, the literature around health halos is really interesting, but it, it, it becomes almost a conversation stopper, right? People take it for granted that this is better for me. They don't necessarily investigate much further. And, and I think we're start, starting to see that with the phrase gut health. Yeah, I agree. I think it, it has become very much a health halo, this idea of probiotics or good for your microbiome, good for your gut, gut healing like all the gut healing, supposedly gut healing drinks that you see now and like the health food stores and, you know, the whole mainstream ones like Whole Foods and stuff like that. And one thing that I've noticed too is like this sort of gut brain axis research that is also pretty early stage and emerging and exciting in so many ways. But, you know, I feel like that's one of the the big areas like revving this engine of gut health hype because it's like, you know, now it's not just about your gut, which not everybody has digestive digestive issues, you know, but everybody probably wants to feel better and think better and maybe address, you know, depression and anxiety and things like that. And so like this, there's this sort of added pressure. It's like it's it's become 
an extra health halo in a way that now you can think about like not just, you know, improving your gut health, but that your gut is connected to your brain or that is connected to your immune system, you know, dovetails with that immune boosting literature as well, right? And that that idea of immune boosting that like now there are all these other things supposedly connected to your gut health. I'm curious sort of what you think about the research connecting, you know, research on the gut brain axis and like how much hype there is there versus the actual reality of the research and sort of, you know, the quality of the research. Yeah, I, th- I think that's an excellent point. And in fact, I would put this on my list of, you know, why has it become so popular? And why has this taken mm-hmm. off over the past couple of years? I, I put that, you know, this phenomenon on that list. And, 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 and it really is this idea that the microbiome research, you know, gut health is really about total health, right? It's not just about, you know, you're having problems with your gut, gut but it's, you know, anti-cancer, it's good for cardiovascular health, and it's good for your mental health, you know, et cetera. It's just this magical realm that we're, we're, we're tackling now. And, and it, makes, it makes gut health such an appealing topic, despite the fact that the research in almost all of these areas is incredibly preliminary. And yes, it's genuinely exciting. So as I said, I work I work on a big grant right now, big microbiome grant with a fantastic team at the University of British Columbia. I'm at the University of Alberta. And we've had this grant for for years. And you know, these researchers would be the first to say, and, and this is their life, right? The first to say it's early days, right? We're mm-hmm. still unpacking this. And and we know it's going to be a complex interaction if it turns out to be real, right? We know mm-hmm. it's going to be complex. It's not going to be something that, you know, there where there's an easy fix, even if this pans out to be a robust connection. So I think it's early days, right? It's early days. And this is a pattern, again, we saw with genetics, we saw with stem cells, where the excitement around early discoveries, early association research was immediately transmitted into marketing <laughs> for products that were unproven. And sometimes what you're seeing is not even a specific product, but they'll u- just use that microbiome language to facilitate the building of a brand, of a well- wellness brand, or mm-hmm. to facilitate the making a alternative practice seem more more legitimate. And unfortunately, right now, it's still, it's still early days. We're still at that point where we need to, you know, kind of patiently watch how the science unfolds. Yeah. I mean, that's so interesting to think about how early stage it is versus all the hype. And one thing that has been really interesting to me is the notion of how scientists and clinicians can kind of play the role of influencers. Like, you know, I think there's a number of these like scientist influencers in the gut health space. And I recently talked to someone who is, I won't say their name, but it's like a respected researcher in this field who used to be a collaborator of one of these people that I'm kind of terming scientist influencers, who said that this person is incredibly charismatic, they're really kind and, you know, good person, but their research is really bad. And that most people in the field know that, but that it's not really known outside the field. And so like, in the lay public, this person's research and this person's you know, has influenced so many people that like think it's legit and have, you know, carried the torch and sort of helped stir up gut hype. And I'm just curious if in your research, you've come across any stories like this, or, you know, any sort of scientist influencers and what you make of that or think we should do about that as you know, when scientists start to have a public profile that maybe outpaces the rigor of their research. 
Yeah, it's a frustrating phenomenon, and and we've definitely seen this play out in other in a, in a range of domains, right? We know that just a few voices, especially if they're MDs, especially if they're scientists, can have an, a huge impact on public discourse. To use a, a dramatic and obvious example, you know, the anti-vax phenomenon, there's been numerous studies, and we've done research in this space too, where that have found just, that just dozens of individuals can have this outsized impact on how the public thinks about an area of science. You know, I, call, I, I recently I I wrote a piece where I suggested that our current information ecosystem is a massive false balance machine, right? Where you mm. have, you know, a handful of contrarian, fringy scientists or MDs having this outsized impact on on how we think about climate change, vaccines, the microbiome, you know, genomics. I could go just on and on and on. You can go down this list. And the vac- there's actually been really interesting studies that have shown that the public can really be influenced by this, this false balance. There was a study that was done in Europe over the summer, or published over the summer, where they found that 90% of the public thinks that the clinical community is split on the efficacy mm. of vaccines. My right? God, 90%. Isn't that incredible? Uh, and of course, the opposite is true, right? Mm. There's almost a complete, you know, the same researchers found that over 90% of MDs think the COVID vaccine is safe and effective. And I think it was like one or 2%, you know, had any real concerns. And there was some in the, a small, very small portion that was in the middle. So there's almost complete consensus, right? But the good news is the good news, that same research shows if you explain that that scientific consensus to the public, you can, you can make a, a difference. The same thing's happening in the realm of gut health, where you have a few of these voices having, you know, this outs, and, and of course, in this realm, we also have marketing creating this impression, right, that, that is contrary to the to the scientific consensus. And I find it, I do find it very frustrating. There are there are these number of scientists that come from very good institutions, and I'm not going to use any names either. They come from very good institutions. Some of them have millions of followers. And they'll even sometimes, you know, I've li- I listen to them for research purposes. They'll even sometimes sound like they're they're representing the research pretty pretty accurately right so they'll say oh this is an animal study that was done or they'll say this was a small study that was done or this is emerging research in the in this area but the take home message is still this works right mm-hmm. whether they're talking about you know going you know taking a you know a cold shower or you know taking some kind of weird sleep supplement or whatever <laughs> what the, even though the science is uncertain the take home message is this works and unfortunately i think it does real damage and i see it play out this is anecdotal i'm being a hypocrite here cuz i just <laughs> use a couple of anecdotes from my own life i get a lot of hate mail and these scientists are often in the hate mail right they'll use it as proof that the scientific consensus is wrong or that I'm not representing the science accurately because this podcaster said X, Y, and Z. Hmm. That's so interesting. Yeah, it's like the outsized influence making people think that that represents a much bigger viewpoint than it actually does. 
Yeah, that's right. And it is frustrating when it comes from, you know, these scientific voices or from, from MDs. Th- there was a study in, in JAMA, again, very recently, and I'm going to use the vaccine. I know vaccines are so controversial, but there's a lot of interesting research emerging on in that domain. But this study in JAMA found that now they... They claim about 50, just over 50 physicians, you know, really directed the anti-vax noise in the United States. And think about that, just, you know, really just a handful of do- of doctors. Now, I, I'm not sure if it was just 50. And it might be more than that. But the, I, I think that the overall point is completely accurate that this very small cohort of individuals with impressive credentials can overwhelm the public discourse regardless of what the actual scientific consensus say. And we, you know, we see it happening all the time, you know, climate change just being one other example. Oh my gosh, there's so many interesting directions we could go there because I'm I'm so curious like to think about what we can do to counter that and what, you know, I hear from people sometimes who say, well, you know, it's all well and good to say like the science doesn't support this or whatever, but people ultimately don't care what the science says. They just want to feel better. And if they think something is making them feel better, like, you know, if they think their probiotic is making them feel better or whatever, or if they think not being vaccinated makes them feel better, you know, whatever it might be, that's what they're going to go for and not, you know, they're not going to necessarily care that something is science-based or not, or it takes a certain kind of person or maybe a person at a certain point in their life who's gone through certain things to like really want to dig into the science, you know? Yeah. And as you can imagine, I I hear that a lot, that a lot also. And I, and I totally, I, I, I sympathize with that perspective. Right. But, but I think at a minimum, at a minimum, we want the public representations of the science to be accurate. Right. So then if someone adopts that perspective in their own life, you know, people have autonomy, they can make choices about their body, obviously, right, obviously. But you want that decision to be informed by accurate information, right, to to push unproven therapies and to spin science and to push misinformation. That's not enhancing autonomy, you know, on the contrary, right? It's taking autonomy away from individuals. So at a minimum, we want to make sure the science is represented accurately. And I think everyone can agree on that. And the interesting thing is, there is evidence that if you represent science accurately, I I know it doesn't feel like it, (laughs) because there's so much noise out there, it just seems endless. But it does make a difference, right? The the study around scientific consensus, for example, even, even for individuals that are skeptical of a field, if you explain what the scientific consensus is, it it can alter their their perspective. It's not a magic wand. Of course, we're talking about moving the needle, but it, it really can make a difference. And I also think it's important to highlight what the scientific consensus is. This is not about groupthink or being overly conservative or trying to shut down controversial views. You know, contrarian and controversial views are are core, are core to science, right? But they have to be supported by the evidence. And you have to listen to what the evidence says as it emerges. What's so frustrating in the gut health space, and I and I know you realize this, but if you talk to the experts, to the people who are actually doing the cutting edge research, they're going to be the first ones to tell you the research is still preliminary, right? Mm-hmm. We're st- it's still early days. Wait for the exciting stuff to emerge in the future. Yeah, no, it's so interesting how that doesn't get translated to the public. And I sometimes wonder if there's like 
one step in there is the university PR office, you know, that's like trying to translate the findings into something that's going to be really interesting and exciting to the press and stripping out some of the nuance there. Oh, you're 100% correct. (laughs) For sure. For sure. In fact, I I wouldn't be careful here. I don't want to overstate. (laughs) Right. I know you're at a university. I'm going to do it anyway. (laughs) I think you could argue that when you're talking about science hype, one of the points where the most hype happens is in the university press releases. I I call it the hype pipeline because it really does happen all, you know, hype happens all the way along that pipeline from getting the research grant in the first place, right? You Mm kind of got to overstate, you know, where you think the science is going to go to to publishing it in a peer-reviewed journal. You know, often there's a little bit of hype, especially in the abstracts, right? In the conclusion and the abstract, sometimes there's a little bit of hype there and then you get hype in those press releases and yeah, you know, often, you know, you'll see that hype. And there's been a lot of studies that have shown exactly that, mm-hmm. that a lot of those press releases have a whole bunch of hype. And then that's picked up by the popular press. And then that's picked up by the social media. And then you get marketing. So you can see how all, all the way along that, that knowledge translation pipeline, you get a little bit more hype that builds on the hype that, you know, right before it. So it's kind of a worst case, worst case scenario in, you know, that that hype creation. It also feels like the skepticism gets diluted as you go further down that pipeline, right? Like there might be a lot of skepticism in the, or sort of, you know, caveats and appropriate critical thinking about the science in the paper itself. Maybe not so much in the abstract or the conclusion. And in fact, sometimes I see like things in the abstract that really aren't represented in the paper, which is interesting. But for the most part, I feel like there's still you know, caveats in the paper itself. But then, you know, you get to the abstract, there's less, the press release, there's less. And then the media, which, I mean, my original background, like my first career and still, you know, current career alongside a dietitian is I was a journalist. And, you know, when I first started out, I was reporting on health and nutrition and food and was not trained in science. I majored in rhetoric and French literature. (laughs) You know, I was like on (laughs) on the path to go, you know, to be writing and doing things with language. And that was what I loved. And I got interested in science because, I mean, I was always kind of interested in science, but I got really interested in it because of my own eating disorder, because it made me obsessed with food and nutrition. And I just wanted to research that all the time and sort of get to the bottom of things. And I wasn't eating enough. So I was like curious about food and wanted to report on that. So, you know, it, it I came in through such a different like backdoor than some people come in. But I have found that within the world of nutrition reporting, especially there is that is kind of a door that a lot of people come through and not so much the science door, like being an undergrad in in a science field and knowing a lot about how to read papers and stuff. So, you know, when I was reporting on stuff, I was doing things based on abstracts or press releases, or sometimes I would try to read a full study that a source would send me, but it'd be like, well, I don't really understand this. Let me like defer to the expert who's telling me what they think the study means. And, you know, they might have some hype that, you know, going on there, wanting to hype up their own research or what the abstract says is going to have some amount of hype and lack of nuance. And so I was transmitting that. So I definitely know that it's easy for journalists to do that. And the profession, especially now, I think is not geared toward giving journalists the time and the certainly not the budget for like continuing education on how to do science reporting or anything like that. And not even the time necessarily to really delve in and think critically about what research says, you know. 
Oh, I agree with all of the above. <laughs> you're, you know, you're absolutely spot on. And one of the first studies that I did on on science representation with my colleague Tanya Bubula, who's at Simon Fraser University now, and we we looked at at science hype and again in the context of genetics, and we found that the popular press representations of the when when there was an article about a genetic discovery in the popular press, most of the hype came from the mouth of the scientists. So in other words, it was a quote from the scientist. And I don't want to sound like I'm pointing fingers at scientists and blaming them. I, you know, they, they live, you know, I, I'm part of this community, right? <laughs> There's tremendous pressure to make whatever work you're doing sound like it has immediate relevance and that it's really exciting. And then you have a, a journalist that is trying to make that work sound exciting too. There's pressure to make it sound like this is a worthwhile article and something you should read. Put those two together and the inevitable result is, is hype. And then of course you have the headline, which both you and I know they don't write, you know, the editors write it. And that's often even more hype. We've done a little bit of research on, you know, that the disconnect between the, the headline and the actual science article. There's often a huge amount of distance there. Maybe it was an animal study. That's not represented. Maybe it was a very preliminary study. That's not represented. Maybe the N in the study, which is very common, the number of people involved in the study in in the nutrition space is often very small. Often that's not represented. So I, I think the point that you made about, you know, how each at each stage, a little bit of uncertainty is sucked out. You know, <laughs> so it becomes less and less certain along that that knowledge translation process is so is so so on point. And the other thing I think happens is people love stories. People love anecdotes they love a powerful story and you know how how many times do you see an article about a, a new gut hype intervention where it starts with a story about someone who benefited it from it and and in fact this happens on social media All, you know social media is just a sea of little stories right and and research tells us that one powerful anecdote one powerful testimonial and this is something we've studied can overwhelm hundreds of millions of data points on efficacy and safety, right? People remember the story. We're kind of hardwired to to respond to stories. And of course, that's the other thing that happens, right? So we need, as science communicators, we need to figure how to use those stories, to use those anecdotes in an accurate way that still makes it, makes it engaging, that draws people in, but still reflects the iterative nature of science, the uncertainty. And, and I think we can do it just because it's hard to do, you know, to translate science accurately doesn't mean we shouldn't try to do it, right? And I, I think we can, I think we can. And by the way, I also think it, it's a good ex- reason why we need to put more investment into science communication and to partnering with artists and with people who come from literature and, and with comedians and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. We've got to figure out how we can make accurate nuanced science stories engaging. Yeah. Well, that's a good segue into a question I have, which is like, how do people know when they're in the presence of gut hype or science hype in general, maybe, versus more accurate reporting about the microbiome or whatever other aspect of science is in question? 
Yeah, you know, this is going to sound cynical, but I'm going to, I'll start with this and then <laughs> and end with a little more positive, less cynical recommendation. The first one is just recognize that the hype exists, right? You know, that I, I actually think that really is a good starting point. You know, recognize that there is this science exploitation phenomena out there that there, you know, there is a, a lot of science hype and, and and it's a systemic pressure. Sometimes there isn't, you know, a nefarious force at play here or some kind of agenda. It's just a systemic phenomenon that happens as a result of the way that science is funded and the way that it's translated, right? So just recognizing that I think is a really good starting point because it gives you it gives you the skepticism that allows you to realize, okay, there's real science happening here, but you know, maybe it's not going to be ready tomorrow. The second thing you can do Again, obvious, but I still think it's valuable. Do they they reference any actual science, any actual studies? And this is one of the things we found from our research. Often that isn't there, right? They they talk in vague terms about they, (laughs) you know, (laughs) stories will often talk in vague terms about the articles about health benefits or where the science is without actually referencing any studies. And if they actually reference some studies and talk about the limitations and talk about what stage the science is at, more likely it's going to be an accurate an accurate study. The other thing, of course, you want to do is you want to you want to see how various domains talk about this. You know, if they represent it as a breakthrough, a revolutionary, be very, very skeptical unless you see that repeated in other by other respected sources, right? I always say, if this stuff worked, if it really was a breakthrough, you'd know, I promise. (laughs) Yeah, that's a great way to cut through a lot of the noise. I'm curious, you know, I'm incredibly skeptical of everything to do with gut health because of recognizing all this hype and, you know, looking at some of the actual literature and talking to people and seeing how kind of early stage it is. But I'm also trying to be open to any place where maybe there's justification to the hype because, you know, I do personally want to feel better. I, I, you know, have come a long way since my disordered eating days when I was struggling with digestive issues really intensely. But, you know, not everything is 100 percent, you know, I'm not symptom free just because I'm not disordered with food anymore. So, you know, there's little things that I would love help with. And I know there's a lot of people listening in the same boat. So curious, you know, from your research, if there are any areas of gut health science where you think maybe some of the hype is warranted or there's at least promise for things that people can, you know, that are that are actually going to be helpful to people in the near term, not just a possibility. So uh, it sounds like you probably know this already. There are a couple domains where we we know that things like probiotics can help. Mm-hmm. And of course, you want to be very careful where you get your pro- probiotics. Many probiotic supplements, for example, aren't aren't regulated as robustly as we'd like them to be. And often over-the-counter supplements are contaminated, et cetera, et cetera. But for, for example, when you're on an antibiotic and you get diarrhea, there's you know evidence that probiotics can help in that space. And for some inflammatory bowel diseases, you know there is some evidence that probiotics can help in certain circumstances. But more big picture, and this is, you know, boring, <laughs> boring response, but, and I bet you this is advice that, that you, you, you're in a better position to give this than, than me, but I'm going to say it anyway. I'm going to say it anyway. I think that a lot of the microbiome research really emphasizes the value of a healthy diet. Now, I told you it was going to be boring and obvious, <laughs> but I think it does. You know, you know, 
eating a, a variety of foods, lots of fruits and vegetables, healthy fibers, you know, fermented foods. I, I think it it backs up the value of doing that. And I think that is not trivial, right? I think that's meaningful. And I also think there's some interesting re- you know, research around fecal, in, in the context of fecal transplants. Now, when I say fecal transplants, I mean this in a clinical setting when you're being supervised by a physician. We already know fecal transplants, for example, can be very helpful in the context of C. diff, you know, really severe gut infections. And we're seeing interesting research, speculative research around things with fecal transplants and ulcerative colitis and, you know, other inflammatory bowel uh, ailments. We're still at wait and see stage, right? We, we don't want to encourage people to do do-it-yourself fecal transplants, which people are doing out there, you know. and You know, it's terrifying. There's real danger with, with those procedures. So no, you know, including infection and or introducing other kinds of illnesses into your into your system. But but I think those are areas where we are seeing more near future benefit. The research team that I'm working with is looking at the role of the microbiome in asthma and in allergies and whether it'll be possible to tweak the microbiome in the future. Again, this is future treatment to to help those kinds of conditions. So there is real research that's happening, you guys, and and I'm excited about about the area, but it's going to be complex. It's and we have to wait and see how it unfolds. Yeah, thank you. That's really helpful. I I think, you know, in terms of the diet piece too, I always I've come such a long way from becoming a dietitian to sort of specializing in eating disorders and now my thinking about diet has become so I guess anti-diet from the stance of, you know, diet culture of like putting people on restrictive diets and that sort of thing, but thinking about variety and pleasure and, you know, not being disordered with food and not having a ton of rules that prevent you from eating enough and, you know, making sure that you're eating diversity of things, which I think I think the diversity piece really is shows promise in some of the microbiome research. I agree with that and and it is so maddening when the microbiome gut health language is used to market restrictive diets. I just, mm-hmm. it's, I find it infuriating. And you do see that, right? You see it in that microbiome language being used to justify things like extreme detoxes, mm-hmm. crazy restrictive diets. And it's just no, 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 no. There's no evidence to support the use of the microbiome in this context. And by the way, research tells us it's actually quite difficult to change your microbiome. I think there's this idea that if I go on this restrictive diet, if I take this, you know, crazy elixir, I'm going to change my micro microbiome. I don't know if you've done it. I actually, for one of uh, my documentary projects, I actually did a, mm. you know, the test, the poop test. And I went on Gwyneth Paltrow's extreme, extreme diet and to find out if my bi- microbiome changed. And you could probably guess what happened, right? You know, I did it before and after. and and it does change, but it goes back, mm-hmm. right? And unless you maintain this unhealthy, restrictive diet, it's it's almost like a fingerprint. I don't want to overemphasize the degree to which that's the case, but you do you do kind of go back to what your ni- microbiome kind of portfolio is after you stopped, and no one can maintain, and nor should you these these crazy diets. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, thank you so much for everything you shared. You know, my last question for you is something I've been asking everyone, which is this podcast is called Rethinking Wellness. And in light of all your work, I mean, your work on gut hype, but also just years and years of studying different wellness interventions and wellness hype in general, I'm curious how you've rethought wellness in light of all that work. Yeah, it's interesting because the word wellness has really evolved in a very unhealthy manner, hasn't it? You know, I, I think it was a very positive term in the past where it was really about how health is more than just your physical health, it's your mental health, it's your community. And, and I love that kind of view mm-hmm. of wellness, but it, now it's just become a term that's used to sell unproven products, to make you feel guilty, to make you feel anxious. And the reality is, you focus on those science-informed basics, right? You focus on those science-informed basics of, you know, don't smoke, exercise, eat healthy. There's no magic there, right? (laughs) You do the basic preventative steps, you know, vaccine, wear a seatbelt, you surround yourself with people that you love. There's real... Really not much more that you can do that other than pick your parents, you know, socioeconomics, <laughs> the, the big stuff. But that's really what we've got to focus on. You know, don't fall down that that wellness hole. Yeah, that's well said. Well, thank you so much, Tim, for everything you shared. Really appreciate talking with you. Can you tell people where they can find you online and find your books and learn more about your work? I'm easy to find on the web and on social media platforms. It's almost always at Caulfield Tim. And I'd I'd love to have you join my conversation. Yeah, we'll put links to those in the show notes so people can find you. And really appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. Thank you. So that's our show. Thanks to our guests for being here and to you for listening. If you've enjoyed this conversation, I'd be so grateful if you could take a moment to subscribe, rate, and review the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening. You can also support us by becoming a paid subscriber for just a few bucks a month on Substack. With a paid subscription, you unlock great perks like bonus episodes, subscriber-only Q&As, and much more. Sign up now at rethinkingwellness.substack.com. That's rethinkingwellness.substack.com. Got burning questions about wellness trends, diet fads, or anything else we cover on the show? Send them my way at christyharrison.com questions for a chance to have them answered in an upcoming episode. And if you're looking to heal your relationship with food and break free from diet and wellness culture, I'd love for you to check out my online course, Intuitive Eating Fundamentals. You can learn more and enroll now at christyharrison.com slash course. Rethinking Wellness is produced and edited by Softer Sounds Podcast Studio. Julianne Witasik does our website production. Our album art was created by Tara Jacoby. Theme song was written and performed by Carolyn Pennypacker-Riggs. I'm your host and executive producer, Christy Harrison. Thanks again for listening and take care.